everyone and welcome to cleft notes like always i'm seth and i'm Allie. and uh today we got a special thing because it's our first two-parter it is our first two-parter and it's also our first topic that was sent in by a listener so um this topic was sent in by allison byers who is an amazing french horn player and a personal friend but today we're going to be talking about why symphonies are so long yeah. Well, I guess today and on our next episode, too. <laughs> well, I guess today's, um, from the little you've told me, uh, it's going to be more like background the symphony, right? Necessarily than digging into that question. Yeah. So how we're going to run this two-part episode is this first episode is going to give some background on what an orchestra is um, and what a symphony is and the beginnings of the symphony in the Baroque and Classical eras. Um, next week, we'll be talking more about the Romantic and Modern era of the symphony and really why it is just so long. Awesome. I'm ready to dig into it. Um, and I guess, <laughs> not really a warning, but there'll be a lot of uh, music snippets this episode, too. Yes. So, especially, like, symphonic music is probably, like, my favorite of classical music in general. Like, I could listen to orchestras <clears throat> so much longer than I could listen to anything else. Um, and especially with symphonies, and when they are this long, it's hard to give you an idea of the piece with, like, a one- or two-minute excerpt. So some of these will run a little bit longer, and I highly encourage all of you to listen to some of these symphonies outside of just the little clips we play too um they're just they're so exciting you're gonna hear this in my voice like all the way through the episode i just i really really love symphonic music awesome so uh i guess we're just getting started with what symphony is yeah what, 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 is, what is a symphony i don't know you tell me so uh, symphony comes from the greek word symphonia which means agreement or concord of sound um and symphonos which means harmonious so Originally, a symphony didn't necessarily mean what we think of today, uh, which I'll say what we think of it today in a little bit. Um, but originally, it just meant instruments playing together in, like, not unison, but in harmony and, like, sounding good. So does that mean, like, uh, symphonies existed back in ancient Greece or just not our modern thinking of symphonies? Well, symphonies definitely did not exist back okay. in ancient Greece. It's just that we took the word symphony from those Greek roots. Okay. So symphonies are works that contain multiple movements and are played by an orchestra. Um, there are occasionally like a few symphonies that are for like a symphonic band, which doesn't contain any string instruments, but the majority of symphonies are for orchestra. Um, they usually contain three or four movements, which are just little pieces kind of inside the overarching category of symphony. Um, and they're usually written for orchestras numbering 30 to 100 players. So, um, is a move, so as it, I guess kind of back on the movement, is a movement basically like an individual song within the greater song kind of a way to look yeah. at it. Yeah, and some movements could be taken out of context and, like, played on their own, but they are 
written to be a cohesive, larger piece overall as well. Okay. So an orchestra is an ensemble that is usually fairly large. Um, and especially like in modern times, the orchestra has just like kind of gotten bigger ever since its inception. Um, and it contains string instruments, brass instruments, woodwind instruments, and percussion instruments. So in like high school and stuff, they have band class and they have orchestra. And orchestra is mm-hmm. typically just like the string players for the most part. Um, do you know why like they consider that orchestra well, versus the whole thing? So like an orchestra can be just string players. And some of the symphonies that we'll listen to that are earlier, like in the classical era, um, just use string players. But like a symphonic orchestra, I'm actually not even entirely sure that that's what a symphonic orchestra means but <laughs> it includes all of the other instruments as well and like when okay. generally when classical musicians talk about an orchestra we mean everything is involved not just strings okay that makes sense so just like a quick rundown strings would be violin viola cello and bass um brass would be your typical french horn trombone trumpet tuba although in this episode in the area we're talking about it won't be all those instruments woodwinds are oboe flute bassoon clarinet oboe you said oboe i said oboe yes (laughs) um i started with oboe because the oboe is my favorite out of the woodwinds um and then percussion which would include um any sort of timpani so like big drums or cymbals and Piano is also technically considered percussion when it's in the orchestra. Um, are there, like, snare drums and bass drums, too? Yeah, on occasion, depending on the symphony. Okay. Uh, it's very, like, especially with percussion and brass, as you get later in time, so, like, closer to modern day, mm-hmm. we get bigger brass sections, bigger percussion sections. But in the beginning, it's, like, very small amounts of percussion and brass. Gotcha. What makes a uh, timpani special as opposed to just, like, a, a bass drum? Um, well, a timpani can be tuned okay. so that when you hit it, it hits a specific pitch. A bass drum is just there, and okay. <laughs> um, that's really all I know about the differences between the two. I feel like a lot of your questions are bringing out the holes in my musical knowledge. <laughs> like, I should probably know the difference between timpani and bass drum more than just that timpani can be tuned, but here we are. That's still more than I know, so. I'm learning as I go. So another thing with an orchestra is that it utilizes a conductor. So we have like chamber ensembles, which are smaller groups of musicians who play just by watching each other. But an orchestra, because it's so large and so spread out, needs a conductor to keep everyone on track. Okay. And that's also partially because a lot of times in symphonies, you're changing like tempo. You have pauses that you need to like be together on Mm. um and like come back in from those pauses on so a conductor is really vital for that gotcha um and besides the conductor an orchestra also has a concert master or a concert mistress um which is the first chair first violin um what what does first chair (laughs) so it's essentially like the best violinist in the orchestra okay and i say the best violinist but i will couch that with like they generally with a concert master, you want somebody who 
moves enough that the rest of the orchestra can also kind of look at them for entrances and to know where they're going. Because a conductor might be conducting like towards a specific section and the concertmaster might like lead in the strings or something. Okay, so by like moves enough, you mean like kind of like exaggerates and tell when a they start bit, playing kind yeah of thing. and i mean they're just kind of like they have more responsibility than the rest of the strings and are like kind of in charge of the strings in a way okay at least they think they are <laughs> so you also said first violin yes so in an orchestra we have two sections of violins the first violins and the second violins and they are about the same in number as the viola section okay so we have three sections there that are all playing different parts um, but because of the numbers, they sound like they're fairly equal. Okay. And that's just, like, that's how it works in an orchestra. <laughs> gotcha. So it's just first violin, second violin, same, except just playing different parts. Yes. Okay. First violins tend to have more of the melody. Okay. Second violins tend to play a lower, like, harmony sort of thing. Gotcha. Um, more of an accompaniment style than the first violins, generally. Okay. <laughs> So before we jump into this, just to give you an idea of like what a symphony can be, the shortest symphony, and I mean, this is like symphonies by famous people. There are like probably random composers who have written like shorter or longer pieces. But and you um, too can write a symphony. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I mean, you can try. I could not. Um, but the shortest symphony is Joseph Haydn's second symphony, which runs just under 10 minutes. It's still three movements long. So like, it's just each movement is very short. Really? Yeah. That's so weird. <laughs> well, and by contrast, like the last movement of Beethoven's ninth symphony is like 23 minutes long. Wow. And Haydn's entire second symphony is like twice as short as the last movement of one of Beethoven's. Um... So we'll probably get into this when we get into, like, why symphonies are so long, except from the short one. Uh, I know, like, from the few I've been to with you, um, you, like, go for one symphony, right? Like, typically? Typically, yes. A lot so of time... with a really short one, you don't just show up for 10 minutes. <laughs> well, especially for modern audiences, like, this was not the thing back in the day. Like, there's a specific concert where Beethoven prepared premiered his sixth and fifth symphonies okay that was four hours long wow um and it included a bunch of other large works too but like the modern art audience doesn't have quite as much of an attention span and so <laughs> if you go you'll likely see one symphony on one half of the program and then the second half will be just an amalgamation of like other pieces okay or another large piece and so haydn's like little baby symphony would probably be on one half of a program with something else gotcha um <laughs> you wouldn't go just for 10 minutes to see <laughs> haydn's second symphony um and the longest symphony um or one of the longest is gustav Mahler's third which runs about 90 to 105 minutes depending on who's playing it wow so over an hour and a half for one symphony. Yeah, I don't have the attention span. Yeah, I don't think I do either. But, I mean, Mahler's great. Just a little long-winded. So, um, in the Baroque era, which is like 1600 to 1750, um, there was ensemble music called symphonies and sinfonias, but there wasn't really a standard like form. Like, a symphony has to include these musical elements. And the parts often didn't specify that a certain instrument was supposed to play them. So it was kind of like, we have this part for a high instrument, 
who can we get at this moment? Okay. So, Baroque era, like, symphonies existed, but not in the way that we think of symphonies now. So, did groups of people, or not, did composers write music for groups of people before the idea of the symphony? Yes, absolutely. Okay. There were... Did they just not really have a name, like a classification? Well, that's that's the whole thing, is, like, these Baroque pieces that were called symphonies... Like, they were for large ensembles. Okay. Um, and in the Baroque era, like, there weren't probably ensembles that were more than 30 players, because that's just how it was. Okay. Um, but they weren't, like, there's other orchest- orchestral music besides symphonies. Okay. So what they call symphonies in the Baroque era is not what a symphony is now. Okay. And I say now, what I mean by, like, the classical era forward. Gotcha. So, getting into the classical era, which is 1750 to 1820, symphonies are getting, like, super, super popular in this era, and they become sort of, like, codified in a certain form. Mm. So, that form in this era is, like, at the beginning of the classical era, it's a three-movement form, but slowly it evolves into a four-movement form with specific speeds for each movement. Okay. So the first movement is fast and usually in sonata form. So sonata form, just a very, very basic, very brief introduction, has three parts. The exposition, which... I was just going to say before you played... We're also going to feature Allie playing keyboard. Oh, yeah. I will be playing <laughs> piano today. Sorry for interrupting. Just, just to explain a couple of things. And so Sonata Form begins with a section called the Exposition. And it has two main themes in it. But the first theme is probably the most important. So the first theme might be something like this. So something usually, I don't know earwormy that'll get stuck in your head i was gonna say it either sounds familiar or i've definitely heard that before i mean i yeah both <laughs> okay <laughs> i've had students play this but it's also a very popular piece so the next section in sonata form is the development and they take the beginning theme usually or one of the themes from the exposition mm-hmm. and develop it into something else so often that'll mean if we're in a major piece, we're taking it into minor or into like a sort of like sad modality. Um, and then they'll like kind of fragment it up and maybe not play the whole little theme in its entirety. So the development could be something like this. So it has sort of the same, like, feel as the beginning of the exposition, but it's in minor, and he's kind of doing different things with it. Okay. Then the third section of sonata form is the recapitulation, which usually we just say recap, um, which is literally just, like, recapping everything that just happened. Gotcha. So um, we'll have the theme that we had at the beginning again. So that's just like brief introduction to sonata form. And this is what we often see in the first movement of a symphony. 
The second movement in the classical era is a slow movement. So not really any sort of specific, I don't know, like parameters on what that slow movement should be, just that it needs to be slow. And then the third movement is a minuet or scherzo with a trio. So, There's a lot of words in there, yes, I don't know. Yes, there are a lot of words. Don't worry. We're going to do we're going to explain it. So, a minuet is a like slow-ish kind of medium speed dance in 3. So, it's a little waltzy. Um When you say in 3, you mean like 3 beats per measure? Yes. Okay. Exactly. Um thank you for clarifying that. You're welcome. Um and then a scherzo is it means joke in Italian and it's fast and like kind of humorous musically like there might be some funny elements okay and so the movement has both of those things you said no so it has one or the other with a trio and what that means is that it's kind of an aba form so let's say our third movement is a minuet we'll have a minuet you'll play it in its entirety then there will be that's the a section then there will be a b section that's the trio Okay. And it's usually in a different key and has a slightly different feel to it. And then at the end, you return to the A section once more. Okay. Um, and that can be either with the minuet or the scherzo. It's just like composer's preference. So I know you described the minuet as like a slowish dance. Did people like actually dance? They, so a minuet like developed in the Baroque era and they would have danced to a minuet in the Baroque era, but... By the time the symphony came around and it's part of the symphony, it's more of like, we're calling this a minuet because it's in three and it's like the same tempo that minuets were when people danced to them, but mm-hmm. people didn't really dance to them anymore. Okay. Um, I mean, sometimes. You might but. know the answer to this because it's just kind of random. Uh, so like in the movies and stuff. Maybe an octopi they're doing classical like movies and they're dancing. There's like a chamber group mm-hmm. being a small group. Was the do people ever dance to symphonies, or were symphonies from the beginning kind of like you sit and watch the symphony? I think that probably larger ensembles in the Baroque era like might have been danced to, maybe at like a very high court sort of thing. Because okay. I mean, like larger ensembles are more expensive, Fair. and so it's kind of the thing where like if you're going to be hiring fifty musicians to play. You kind of want your audience to sit there and, like, <laughs> yeah. listen. You don't hire that many people just to be background. Yeah. That um, makes sense. So that was the third movement. And then the fourth movement is fast and usually either in sonata form that we already talked about or in rondo form. And rondo form is, well, it's abacaba. A-B. A-C-A-B-A. Or okay. it can be abacadacaba. Um, I'm going to feel this stupid, so I'm not going to ask. Oh, ask. Uh, is Row Row Your Boat one? No. That's a round. That's a round. Not a round. Not Rondo. Rondo. <laughs> I know. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I do feel stupid. Yeah, not, not really the same thing. So an example of a Rondo would be we have an A section. <laughs> um, for Elise is a good example of this. Um, we have an A section. That keeps coming back throughout the whole thing. Okay. Then in Furley's, we have a B section. And Furley's is not actually like Abacaba because <laughs> we don't go back to that B th- theme again. It's like a shorter rondo. But anyway, then we have the A section again. 
then we have a C section. And then finally, at the end, we have the A section. One last time. So that's rondo form, and okay. that would be the fourth movement of the symphony. And the thing is, in the classical era, and really moving forward too, the four movement form wasn't like super rigid. And sometimes composers would switch the order of the movements, or they might add like a slow introduction for a fast movement. Um, so like usually if they were switching movements, it would be the second and third that would be flopped. So mm. instead of a slow movement coming first and then a minuet or scherzo, it would be a minuet and scherzo, then a slow movement. Uh, was the fourth movement that was added the fourth movement? Or was it? Does that make sense? Because you said it started out with three. So is the fourth one just actually that Rondo one you were talking about? or Not necessarily. Because like generally symphonies end with a fast movement. Okay. And so it would have been more likely that it would have been like the first movement is fast. The second movement is either slow or, or a minuet. Oh, okay. Or scherzo. And then the fourth or the third would be fast again. Gotcha. Um, who decided this? If that makes sense. Okay. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but there, okay. So there are three different like symphonic schools and classical music. Okay. And they're based on locations. So okay. there was like an Italian school and there was the Mannheim school. And then there's a third one that I can't remember right now. Viennese maybe. Um, and it just kind of essentially came together on its own. But part of it is that Vienna was the center of classical music in the classical era. Mm. And I mean, really for most of music history and aristocrats would have their own like little baby orchestra and not even necessarily baby that would live at like with them and perform and make new works on a regular basis. Okay. And when aristocrats would travel to Vienna to their homes in Vienna for you know whatever time of the year they were in Vienna, <laughs> they would take their orchestras with them. And okay. so in Vienna, all of these orchestras from around Europe would have had access to each other and all of these composers would have had access to each other. And so because of that, um, it was like, it was how you heard new works. And I think that that was how symphonies kind of solidified in this form. Okay, cool. So orchestration in this era, um, and when I say orchestration, that's like, who is playing this? Who mm. is in the orchestra at this moment? Um, the early classical period started with string symphonies only, and then added French horns and oboes and a bassoon every once in a while that would double the basses. Okay. Um, occasionally, a harpsichord or piano would play a, like, chordal sort of part. Um, By chordal, do you just mean, like, playing chords? Playing chords, essentially. We call it a continuo, um, and that's like a holdover from the Baroque era. It doesn't last very long into the classical okay. like, era, so we don't need to get into that. And then towards the end of the classical period, we get flutes, clarinets, um, and timpani, and oboes as well. So as we're going through the classical era, through these 70 years, um, we're kind of slowly adding more instruments to the orchestra, Gotcha. which will be a trend that continues into the Romantic era. So the first composer I want to talk about is um, Joseph Haydn, who I mentioned with that super short symphony. Um, we call him Papa Haydn because he's known <laughs> as the father of the symphony. 
He wrote 106 over the course of 36 years. Um, he he lived a long time, so he that's part of the reason he was so prolific. But mm. he also had a very demanding patron who wanted a lot of symphonies all the time. Oh, so it wasn't entirely his own. Well, yeah, I mean, like, he was a working composer, so he had to churn out compositions. Gotcha. And he was prolific in other areas, too. Like, he wrote 50-something, 52, I think, piano sonatas, wow. which is a lot. Um, anyway, so he was part of the reason that symph- the symphonic form also kind of got codified. Okay. Um, because he was super popular and like when you went to Vienna you would like go to hear Haydn symphonies and then you would get his music and you would take it back like with you to have your orchestra play. Gotcha. Um, sort of thing. So we're going to listen to two of his symphonies. The first is Symphony Number no. 45 which is nicknamed the Farewell Symphony. Um, it was written in 1772 when Haydn was 40. So it's kind of like a middle work for him. Not super late in life. Um, but where he has already, like, moved into that four-movement form, uh, that he probably didn't have in his earlier symphonies. I say probably. He definitely didn't have. (laughs) That symphony number two was only three movements. (laughs) So this symphony is very famous because of the way that it ends. So in the fourth movement, which is a presto adagio movement, which is kind of weird, um... What does that mean? So, Adagio means slow. Yeah, so a lot of times we'll call symphonies by their tempo, like their movements by their tempo markings. Okay. So this last movement would have been fast mm-hmm. and then slow. Okay, so okay, so presto means fast and so yes, presto adagio means start slow. fast, go slow, mm-hmm. and, and slow. the form like never like the sonata or rondo form never really creeps into what we call movements. Okay. That's just there. That's just what that. it is. Yeah. Okay. So this symphony is special because uh, it has a story that goes with it. So Haydn's patron, Nicholas Esterhazy, had taken the symphony to his summer palace in Hungary. Like Haydn and all the players in the symphony. And they were chilling in Hungary during the summer. Sounds like quite the group. Yeah. The stay had been a lot longer than they had expected. And the musicians really wanted to go back home to Austria to their wives. <laughs> Um, they asked Haydn to kind of like intercede on their behalf. Like, we really want to go home. You probably don't need us here, Esterhazy. Come on. Yeah. And uh, Haydn, who was kind of known as a practical jokester, and he was just a very like happy, jocular sort of person, um, he wrote the symphony. And in the last movement at the end, in the adagio, each musician slowly got up, snuffed out the candle that was on their music stand. And left. So that by the end, there was only Haydn and the concertmaster left playing. Like, even the conductor just, like, got gets up and leaves. Haydn was playing violin in this. Oh, interesting. And uh, Esterhazy apparently got the the little, like, nudge that oh. Haydn was giving him, <laughs> and they went home the next day. Wow, that's actually very funny. <laughs> so this is the adagio part of the finale. And it's not the entire thing because it's long and kind of hard to hear. But you'll hear slowly instruments dropping out. It's really apparent at first because there's a like trumpet or horn that's playing um, that goes away. And then the basses drop out after that. And then it'll be just slowly one person at a time leaving until the end. Thank you. 
That's really fun. Yeah, it's super hilarious. And like you can see, I'm sure that as somebody who is working for somebody who is as powerful as Nicholas Esterhazy, it was probably a good way to bring about like my musicians want to go home because yeah. I was like, it was funny and it's good music. And I'm sure the audience really enjoyed it like yeah. at the time. So the other like excerpt that I'm going to play from Haydn is his symphony number no. four, which is nicknamed the Surprise Symphony. Okay. This is probably his most famous symphony, and I don't want to tell you very much about it until we play it. Okay. <laughs> sure that was quite the surprise the first time it was performed <laughs> yeah so did he call it like the surprise symphony and that's what it was performed as no usually nicknames find their way to pieces and are like not given to them by the composer okay. occasionally but i don't think Haydn called this this the surprise symphony okay so like somebody the first time it was premiered would have just been it going was to a see. surprise yeah yeah they would have been going to see symphony number four or number 94 and when that comes in it's shocking. That's fun. And this is the second movement of the symphony, so it's the slow movement. Okay. Um, and especially, like, slow movements tend to be just really, like, gorgeous and kind of, like, not very exciting at all. And so when the audience was expecting that, instead they get the big loud chord at the end, which I think is just really funny. Um, is slow just relatively slow to the other movements, or is there, like... A beats per minute that is considered slow there are like beats per minute that have been assigned to each tempo marking so like andante should be 
whatever to whatever. I don't know that off the top of my head. Sure. But it's all kind of like relative because not every Andante piece is going to fall into like those beats per minute. Right. And a lot of it does have to do with the feel that it has compared to other movements. But generally, too, it's like, what beat are you feeling? Okay, so now we're going to talk about Mozart and his symphonies. Mozart wasn't as prolific as Haydn, um, probably because he died really young, but he did write 41 symphonies in 24 years, and those are the ones that he himself numbered. Um, there are about 20 others that he did not number, so he either like didn't think they were good enough or just never had them performed, and they were like in a drawer somewhere that somebody found. Wow. Um, he wrote his first symphony, though, when he was only eight. So he was... Got started early. Yeah, he did. So he was prolific for um, the time that he was alive. And he was also writing a lot of different types of music that Haydn wasn't writing. Like, he was writing a lot of operas um, that Haydn didn't really do. So the first symphony of Mozart's we're going to listen to is Symphony Number no. 40 in G minor. Okay. Um... It was written in 1788 when Mozart was 32, and this is three years before he died. Okay. Um, and it's indicative of his Sturm und Drang like period, which means storm and stress. So in classical, like the classical era, a lot of the music that we think of is very just like happy and kind of innocu innocuous and like doesn't make you think of, I don't know, feelings. <laughs> and this is not that. He wants you to feel. Yeah, and it's a lot more foreboding than a lot of classical music. Okay. It's also one of only two minor key symphonies that Mozart wrote. It's in G minor, and his other symphony that was in minor was also in G minor. So this is like the big G minor symphony. Um, the other one is called the Little G Minor Symphony. And this is unusual because the entire thing is in minor. And up to this point, if a symphony, like, began in minor with its first movement, mm -hmm. by the last movement, it was usually in major so that we could end on a happy note. <laughs> and Mozart was just kind of like, no, we're not going to do we're that. staying sad the whole time. Yeah. So it has four movements, um, but we're just going to play the opening of the first movement, which is molto allegro, which means very fast.
that feel angsty enough for you? It did really, yeah. It did feel pretty angsty. I mean, as angsty as like classical era music. Yeah, get. sure. But uh, yeah, no, it definitely did not. It didn't have the same feel as like the high end ones we just listened to. Absolutely. Um, the other symphony of Mozart that we're going to play is number 41, which is the last symphony that he himself numbered. It was written at the same time as number 40 and number 39. They were like a set of three that were written in the same year. Oh, okay. Um, and it, this is regarded as one of the greatest symphonies of all time, regardless of era. Really? Yes. Um, its nickname is the Jupiter Symphony, and Mozart definitely did not give this nickname. Someone else did, although we don't really know who. But, like, legend has it that the opening reminded someone of Jupiter's, like, thunderbolts. So Jupiter the god, not Jupiter the planet. Yeah. felt like a storm at the beginning kind of like i kind of get the whole thunderbolt kind of thing yeah um so is there like a specific characteristic of this that makes it so highly renowned or is it just like one of those like everybody's like yeah this is good (laughs) (laughs) i mean without getting into like really specific like compositional details that is kind of it like when a symphony is really good it's the same thing with listening to pop music like when you hear something that like really for lack of a better term like really slaps um (laughs) i mean that's what people would have thought of back then right and i'm sure when this premiered it was really really exciting and the audience probably went wild over it okay cool And I mean, another thing with that, too, is that it's just something that has staying power. And so this has been popular and has been performed like pretty much ever since Mozart wrote it. Sure. And like sometimes composers go in and out of fashion and Mozart did a little bit, but not as much as others. So it really like it's just kind of been on the world stage ever since it was composed. Okay. Okay. So lastly, we're going to talk about Beethoven's symphonies and As I've mentioned previously, Beethoven is the bridge from the classical to the romantic era. So, like, he technically wrote these symphonies during the classical era, but they're much more, um, like, a harbinger of, like, what's to come. (laughs) What? Nothing. I I just, whenever I hear harbinger, I just think of, like, something foreboding. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, that's actually, like, 
a little bit true in the fact that like as we move on, symphonies get a lot more emotional and are a lot more in minor. Oh, okay. Especially Beethoven. I mean, <laughs> I mean, we talked before about how he's he was an angsty person. Yeah, absolutely, and it definitely comes through in his symphonies. So Beethoven was not nearly as prolific as Haydn and Mozart. He only wrote nine symphonies. Okay. But each one, unlike Haydn and Mozart's, is considered a masterwork. Yeah, I guess because I was gonna say, I feel like for me, Beethoven's probably the person I think of just because of like the Fifth Symphony. Yes, absolutely. And Fifth Symphony, for those of you who may have forgotten, is...
That was some good music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what what about it to you makes it good? Um, well, you know this. Uh, you being Allie, not the audience, obviously. <laughs> um, I'm a sucker for like big sounds, especially like my movie soundtracks. Oh yeah. Um, and so especially like just the build up, and then you like. You get that payoff of the nice big sound at the end of it all. Absolutely. When the horns come in and the timpani comes in. And I mean, that's what I love about symphonies too. Like soft playing is great. But like when I go to a symphony, especially in the first and the fourth movements, I want to hear some like giant sound. Yes. Um, so is this a minuet? This is an allegretto. Okay. Um, so it's the slow movement of this symphony. Okay. And allegretto means... A little fast, like a little baby fast, and technically a little bit lively, because that's what allegro means, and the etto is like a little bit on it. So this is like technically the slow movement, even though it's not that slow. Okay. Just as you were saying before, in comparison to the other movements, it is. Gotcha. So the last excerpt we'll play today is from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. We're not going to play the first movement because I think everyone probably knows what that sounds like. Um, I was thinking about playing the last movement of his Ninth Symphony, um, which is the last like symphonic thing he wrote, um, which includes a full choir and it's Ode to Joy. I just like couldn't find an excerpt. You have to listen to like all of that movement. So go listen to the last the last movement of the ninth symphony. But we will play part of the last movement of the fifth symphony. Um, just the whole symphony in general is one of the most popular classical compositions of all time of mm -hmm. any like form ever. So the first movement obviously is the most popular, but the last movement is also very recognizable, um, and it's just really 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 good music. <laughs>
mainstream as it is for me to say, Beethoven just speaks to me, I think, <laughs> on an emotional level. Well, and we haven't even, like, you're listening to this compared to the classical music, like classical era stuff we listened to at the beginning, like Mozart and Haydn. Just wait. Just wait until we get into the romantic and, like, more modern eras. Um, Because I do really enjoy Beethoven symphonies, but the romantic and modern symphonies are just, I mean... They're, they're what movie music grew out of, so it's really, it's going to be a good week next week. Oh, yeah. Speaking of which, uh, yeah, I think this is where we're going to bow out for the week. Um, Beethoven makes a good exclamation point on a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on the first half of the history of the symphony, for yeah. sure. Um, and we promise that we'll get into why they're so long. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, like, we've done that a little bit so far. Like, if there are four movements, yeah, it has to be a certain length for, like, each movement to have developed musically and, like, to really be fleshed out. Unless you're hiding trying to make a point, probably. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised, to be completely honest. I could see him, what you were saying about the practical jokes, or it'd be quite the practical joke to, like, say, I'm releasing a new symphony, and so everybody's getting all, like, ready to go, and, like... <laughs> to Haydn's next symphony and they go all there and it's 10 minutes long and then they just leave. <laughs> if anyone would do it, it would be Haydn, for sure. So we will be back next week talking about the Romantic era and the modern era and why symphonies are so long. Yeah. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.